Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the history of Russia. I'm Damon and this is episode 53, Peter the Great, part 8, the Emperor of all the Russias. Thanks for listening in. Okay, so as outlined last time out, this week in what will be the penultimate episode of the Peter the Great miniseries, we'll be getting to grips with a number of different themes. And we'll start with that elephant in the room the death of the Tsar's son and heir, Alexei Petrovich. And then we'll review the key events that occurred in parallel with the latter stages of the Great Northern War before moving on to cover Russia's new standing in the European pecking order. And then we'll finish off by looking at the period between 1721 and 1725, which actually happened to be the last five years of Peter's life. And then the next episode after this one will be an overall appraisal of Peter's life and times. And then after that, we'll be taking a break from the chronological order and looking at how things stood in 1725 from the Russian, European and the global standpoints. Before we start, though, I just need to tell you about some changes that are going to be coming down the line. So I've been mulling over how I can improve things in terms of the content that I'm putting out and also how I can cover some of the overheads that are associated with the podcast. So here's what I plan to do. Starting in the new year, and that's January 2023 to anyone playing catch up, there will be two ways to listen to the History of Russia podcast. First, as you do now, still totally free and without any advertising, which, by the way, I was considering, but for now, have decided to pass on, because to be honest, as a listener, I'm not a big fan of it. The only difference is that there will be two episodes a month instead of three. Then secondly, there will be a monthly subscription-only episode that will feature content related to a wide range of Russian themes outside of the chronological narrative. So they could be cultural, or historical, or geographical. 
Plus, for your small monthly subscription, you will get the normal free episodes earlier, and these will also include an accompanying transcript. So I've still got some thinking to do about how some of the logistics and the finer details will work, and I'll let you know if anything that I've just said changes. For the time being though, if you've got any opinions, comments or ideas, then please get them across to me either via Twitter, where I'm on Twitter as History Russia one or if you just search for the History of Russia. And yes, I am still on Twitter and I'm just keeping an eye on things over there just to see how they pan out. Or you can use the get in touch or voicemail options on the website, which is historyofrussia.net. Or finally, there's the good old email option, nordicworld, that's N-O-R-D-I-C-W-O-R-L-D, at outlook.com, and that will get you through to me. Oh, and if you are enjoying the show, then don't forget to follow or subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you're really, really enjoying the show, then a nice five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or the website would be gratefully appreciated. Okay, that's enough blurb from me. Let's crack on and do some history of Russia. So the latter part of the previous episode dealt with the breakdown of the relationship between Peter and Alexei that ultimately led to the death of the Tsarevich in a prison cell on the 26th of June, 1718. So we know the what, and we know the when, but what we don't know completely is why. Why and for what purpose was the already feeble Alexei punished with the knout? Was the aim to get the Tsarevich to further confess and him dying was just an accident? Or were the punishment sessions designed to finish him off without the need for an official execution? And what did Peter himself know or do in those final dark days? And even before then, at what point and why had the Tsar decided that his son and heir was surplus to requirements? So let's start with that last question, because in my mind, that's pretty simple to explain. Up until August 1716, when Alexei had run away to Vienna, and maybe even up till Yefrosinia had blabbed and referred to Alexei's letters in April 1718, I believe that Peter would have been satisfied with Alexei being cut out of the succession and living as a monk in some distant secluded monastery. However, after April 1718 and those letters, in Peter's eyes, Alexei stopped being an enemy and became a traitor, although not a very effective or a dangerous traitor. And that's when I think the Tsar decided that the Tsarevich had to be eradicated. And those words, Tsar and Tsarevich, are important here because, in Peter's eyes, this was nothing to do with the father-son relationship. It was all to do with the relationship between the head of state and the next in line. It was business. It wasn't personal. But I also think that even after the Senate, etc., had read out the death sentence in June 1718, the last thing that the Tsar or the man would have wanted was the very public state execution of the Tsarevich or his son. 
So who ordered the knouting, and from what exactly did Alexei die? Well, from what I can ascertain, Peter ordered the knouting. He was allegedly present for the second session, and he must have known that it would end his son's life. And as for the last question, he was right. Alexei was frail, both mentally and physically, and we know that the 25 lashes or more could kill even the healthiest of men. So my conclusion, Peter knew that the use of the knout would kill his son, and he made sure that it did. Having said all of that, after the event, Peter made no attempt to cover up what had happened, although he did weep at his son's funeral, and indeed on many occasions in the years that followed, he declared that his son had rightly died a traitor's death. But what does the whole sorry saga say about the Tsar's personality, or indeed many of the relationships throughout history between ruling sovereigns and their successors? Having your own flesh and blood cruelly and coldly put to death though, I mean, that puts Peter in a different league, doesn't it? Even Ivan the Terrible sort of had an excuse, at least he'd killed his son by accident, in a fit of paranoid rage. Well, I'm going to leave those thorny issues until the next episode, when I'll be wrapping up my overall conclusions to Peter's life and times, and trying to put the death of Alexei into some kind of overall context, and I've underlined the word trying there. For now, though, let's get stuck into a few of the other items that had occurred in Russia and elsewhere whilst the Great Northern War was running its course, and I didn't get time to cover in the last episode, or I forgot to cover in the last episode. So very quickly then, in January 1716, some 19 years after the Grand Embassy, Peter, accompanied by Catherine, of course, and Foreign Office officials, embarked upon his second major trip to the West. And the reasons for this second grand tour were threefold. First and foremost, the Tsar wanted to plan, together with his allies, the strategy for ending the Great Northern War and the dismantling of the Swedish Empire. Secondly, he wanted to attend the wedding of his eldest niece, Ivan's son, Yekaterina, and possibly arrange future marriage contracts for his two young daughters. And then thirdly, Peter needed to do something about his poor health, and more about this in a minute. This second visit took in Prussia, Hanover, Denmark, the Netherlands, and post-Louis XIV France. And all in all, Peter was away from Russia for 22 months, eventually returning to St. Petersburg in October 1717. Also in 1717, Russia had attempted to expand eastwards by invading the Khanate of Kiva, located between the Caspian and Aral Seas, but the campaign was a complete disaster, and almost the entire expeditionary force was wiped out, with only a few stragglers eventually making it back to Moscow. In 1718, Peter embarked upon a wholesale reform of the Prikazes, the largely ineffective and labyrinthine Muscovite ministries, by replacing them with a number of colleges that would be based in Petersburg. There would be separate colleges for foreign affairs, war, the navy, of course, finance, 
justice and inspection, with each one being run by a president who reported directly to the Tsar. And then later that year, the Orthodox Church fell under the Tsar's gaze. Back in 1700, Patriarch Adrian, who, if you remember, had opposed Peter's westernising reforms, had died, and the Tsar had appointed Stefan as the new Patriarch, but without any of the traditional responsibilities or powers, so Stefan was in reality Patriarch in name only. In 1721, Peter finally decided to, to abolish the Patriarchate, and he replaced it with a brand new body called the Most Holy Governing Synod, which was made up of not just the church, but also lay members, so that the Tsar could keep an eye on things. Stefan was appointed as the Synod's president, but he refused to add his signature to any of the official documents, and he didn't attend any of the meetings. Peter was obviously aware of Stefan's opposition and had him questioned, but in 1722 the ex-patriarch became ill and later that year he died. For the next 200 years, Russia stroke Moscow would have archbishops and metropolitans, but it wasn't until 1917, ironically just after the revolution, that the office of the Patriarch of Moscow was restored. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, so with all of the various threads brought up to date, let's pause for a few minutes and look at where things stand in 1721. So Peter, who was now aged 48, had been the Tsar of Russia for 32 years. His son and heir, following Alexei's death, Peter Petrovich, had died aged four in 1719, which left just two daughters, Anna and Elizabeth, and a grandson and a granddaughter, Peter Alexeyevich and Natalia Alexeyevna, in the direct line of succession. Oh, and as I've mentioned, health-wise, the Tsar wasn't in a good place. The Great Northern War that had lasted 21 years had been won, and the Russia of 1721 was, on the surface, unrecognisable from the Russia of 1689. Militarily and territorially, the Swedish Empire had been dismantled, the Ottomans were occupied elsewhere, and the Commonwealth was moribund. Russia had ships in the Baltic, but for the time being, not in the Black Sea. There'd been further expansion into the east, 
with the Kamchatka Peninsula becoming Russian in 1796, and of course Finland temporarily, and the Baltic provinces were now in Russian hands. On the home front, basically anything that could have been reformed had either been changed, adjusted, moved, or was earmarked for change. The calendar, the currency, education, government administration, the army, the capital city, and the church. And still to come, taxation and changes to the system of aristocratic ranks and titles. Peter had made two grand tours of Europe and a number of other visits. Russia was less xenophobic and Western influences were seeping into every corner. The country was safe and secure and for the time being had no external enemies or internal strife. But if you were to scratch that surface, which we'll be doing in more detail next episode, you'd find that life for the vast majority of the Russian people, the serfs, peasants, labourers, merchants, village priests, was just as it had been since time immemorial. And in the minds of the elite established continental powers, France, Great Britain, Spain, Austria, et al., Russia still had that whiff of Asiatic mystery and perceived backwardness. And whatever the event of the past 20 years, it still just wasn't seen as a full member of the European club. Peter was aware of this, of course he was, and so he decided to up the ante. To start with, in 1721, and once the treaty ink was dry, he had his official title changed from Tsar of all the Russias to Emperor of all the Russias. Now, this resulted in a mixed reaction, mainly because in terms of European royal hierarchy, emperors outranked kings. So Peter's new imperial title was recognised by Augustus II of Poland. Uh, he'd been back as the King of Poland since 1709. Frederick William I of Prussia and Frederick I of Sweden, who'd taken over as king in 1720 after the short reign of Charles XII's daughter, Ulrika Eleonora. Note that those three states all now bordered Russia. But from the rest of Europe, nothing, not the slightest hint of congratulations being sent or any other kind of formal recognition. And so seeing himself and Russia as being somewhat snubbed, Peter was keen to make further territorial acquisitions that would justify and legitimise his use of the terms emperor and empire. And in 1722, such an opportunity fell right into his lap. The once powerful Persian Shia Safavid Empire, which lay to Russia's south, was in terminal decline. And the Ottomans were sniffing around, trying to take advantage of the situation. Peter decided that two could play at that game, and launched what is now called the Russo-Persian War of 1722-1723, alternatively known as the Persian Expedition of Peter the Great. And so Russian forces flooded into the eastern Caucasus and the Caspian regions, and within two years, they'd forced the Safavids to hand over a number of northern Persian provinces. Now these gains would turn out to be short-lived, and all of the territory won by the Russians in 1723 would be returned to Persia just 12 years later. But for the here and now, 
Peter could claim with slightly more justification that he'd sort of got his empire, plus he'd managed to stymie the Sultan's attempts to increase Ottoman territory and influence. Back in Petersburg, and as already alluded to, further reform was in the air, and this time it was the aristocrats and the boyars who were in Peter's crosshairs. Back in 1711, the newly formed Senate had replaced the Boyar Duma, but not the Boyars themselves, who now collectively did very little and yet still enjoyed their hereditary titles and all of the trappings that went with them. In 1722, in came a new order of precedence based on merit and service, which was known as the Table of Ranks, or in Russian, the Tabel or Rangach, which for the first time officially replaced the rules and tables of precedence that Peter's half-brother Fyodor had burned back in 1682, and set out the terms and conditions that had to be met for each of the 14 rungs of the ladder, and how they impacted the civil administration, the army, and the navy. So in theory, this meant that the old way of determining who got to do which top job, i.e. birth and family rank, were gone. In the years to come, and in practice though, those rules would become more fluid, particularly if the ruler of the day needed support from the aristocracy. But, like so much else that Peter reformed, they would stay in place in varying degrees until 1917. So after 23 years of almost continual warfare, money, or a serious lack of it, was by 1723 becoming a serious problem. Serious enough to start impacting upon a number of projects and improvements that Peter was either making or hoping to make in St. Petersburg, and in particular his pièce de résistance, Peterhof Palace, or, as it would become known, the Russian Versailles. And so a new system of personal taxation was introduced. Out went the land and household taxes, and in came the poll tax. And whereas the former had only been paid by the property holders and heads of families, the poll tax was to be paid by everyone, even the poorest of the poor. 1723 was also the year when Peter's health problems started to become much more serious. Okay, so remember that one of the reasons for Peter's second grand tour to Western Europe in 1716 and 1717 was to do something about his ill health. So what was wrong then, and what was the situation now? Well, in 1716, Peter was 43, and had been massively overworking, massively overdrinking, and pretty much massively overdoing everything for decades, with the result that his immune system had started to give up. He'd grown used to the tics and seizures, and they didn't appear to be causing any long-term harm. But as he slipped into middle age... He was increasingly beset by all manner of infections and fevers, which frequently left him bedridden for weeks. And so, at Catherine's instigation, he spent part of his second European trip, five weeks in fact, resting and taking the waters at the fashionable Ardennes resort of Spa, whilst his wife stayed in Amsterdam. And taking the waters for Peter meant drinking copious amounts of mineral water staying off the alcohol, and generally taking it easy. 
Now he was okay with drinking the water and not too bad with the taking it easy. But, to my mind, failed miserably on the alcohol side of things, as indicated by letters between the Tsar and his wife. In one message to Catherine, Peter thanks her for the gift of two bottles of vodka, and in another complains that most days he only has five proper drinks, either beer or wine, and only two portions of spirits. And so the five-week rest period would have been the only thing that really helped Peter's health, but once he was back in circulation, the really heavy drinking started up again, and so did the long, stressful regime of almost constant hard work. And in a short time, the Tsar was knocked off his feet by another fever. Peter's answer to all of this when he returned to Russia was to drink even more mineral water, and this time it was the strong Russian mineral water containing loads of iron. And it's this, coupled with the years of alcohol abuse, that probably led to a further deterioration in his health. In 1723, Peter was laid low by a serious urinary tract infection that just wouldn't go away, and that in the end had to be treated with surgery. But of course, surgery without anaesthetic. Tougher times, my friends, tougher times. By the summer of 1724, things had gone worse. The Tsar, unable to pass urine, was in extreme pain, and another round of surgery was required, and this time it took weeks for Peter to recover. But during that period of convalescence, a couple of events occurred, one of them possibly providing us with a hint as to how Peter was thinking, and the other, well, being just downright bizarre and strange. Both involved Catherine. And we'll start with the bizarre. Do you remember Anna Mons, Peter's German or Dutch mistress? Well, Anna had a brother named Willem, and young Willem Mons, after his sister's fall from favour, joined the Russian army and even took part in the Battle of Poltava. In 1711, he'd somehow managed to get himself appointed as Peter's personal adjunct, and at the same time, another sister, Matriona, had somehow managed to become best friends with Catherine. In 1716, and at Catherine's urging, Peter entrusted Willem with the administration of her estates, and after Catherine, Catherine's coronation as consul in 1724, and we'll get to that in a minute, he was promoted to the rank of Imperial Chamberlain. Later in 1724, however, Willem Mons was suddenly arrested on charges of embezzlement and breach of trust, and after a brief and brutal inquiry by Peter Tolstoy, he was publicly beheaded on November the 27th. Now you might be ahead of me here, but the reason or rumoured reason for Willem's execution was that Peter had discovered that Mons was Catherine's lover. Now nothing untoward happened to Catherine, but Willem's sister Matriona was publicly flogged as she was deemed to have acted as the kind of go-between for the two lovers. Okay, back then to that other event, Catherine's coronation as Peter's Empress or Empress Consul. There were two views as to why this happened. One, Catherine pushed for it, loud and often, and Peter just acquiesced, and anyway, what was the harm? Or, Peter knew that he didn't have much time left, and was bolstering Catherine's position in the succession stakes, 
Either way, by early 1725, everyone's thoughts were consumed by what was going to happen next, because it was obvious that this time Peter wasn't going to recover. His urinary tract infection had returned, and now his doctors suspected, rightly as it turned out, that his bladder had become gangrenous. At the beginning of February, the Tsar was slipping in and out of consciousness, and on the morning of the 8th, he died. Now there is a rumour, quite a strong one actually, that just before his death, Peter asked for paper and pen, and clearly in agony, scrawled an unfinished note that read, Leave all to... And then, exhausted by the effort, asked for his eldest daughter, Anna, to be summoned. And I'm afraid on that bombshell, that's where we're going to end things for this week. Next time, it's going to be the, the last episode. And we'll be looking into who the contenders were to be the next ruler of all the Russias. And then we'll finish off by taking that look at the overall summary and the overall conclusion to Peter's life and times. So, until then, dear listeners, look after yourselves, stay safe, lay off the Russian mineral water, and I'll speak to you all soon. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.